you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of James, chapter 4. James 4, that's page 1013 in the black pew Bibles there in front of you if you want to use one of those. We're going to be looking at James 4, verses 13 through 17. Well, it's that time again. It's Olympic time, right? The Winter Olympic ceremony was just a couple days ago. I've got to be honest, I don't get nearly as excited about the Winter Olympics as I do about the Summer Olympics. Maybe that's uh, un-American of me, but uh, uh, I just really like the Summer Olympics. But nonetheless, the Olympics, even in the winter, are pretty interesting. Uh, There's events I enjoy watching, like the speed skating or skiing or the bobsledding, things like that. But what's become popular in recent years is not just the events themselves, but the backstories of the athletes. In fact, a large part of the Olympic coverage now is not even showing us the events. You turn on the Olympics, chances of actually watching an event are pretty slim. More than likely, what you're going to see are these mini documentaries about the Olympic athletes. Many of them are very inspiring. It's not uncommon to watch them and experience a wide range of emotions as you see the dreams that these people have had their entire lives to be in the Olympics. And then to see the amount of time and energy they've given to that one sport, that one thing, and the setbacks and adversity that many of them have faced to get where they are. The one I've seen this year was actually, it wasn't actually one of those miniseries documentaries at all. It was actually a commercial that aired during the Super Bowl. I don't know if you saw it or not. It's only about one minute, and it's actually about an athlete uh, who competes in the Paralympics. It starts off by showing a baby with both legs missing from the shins down. And on the screen, it asks the question, what are the odds of this child winning an Olympic gold medal? And it shows a number at the bottom. It's like one in 10 million or something. I don't know. It's really quick. You can't even really see. It's just a ridiculously high number, right? Of course, this child could never win an Olympic gold medal. And it shows um, this little girl learning to walk on those little half legs, then it shows her a little older taking ballet lessons with a, with a prosthetic leg. Then it shows her a little older learning to ski. And each time it shows her doing something more advanced, the number of the odds goes down. One in one million, one in 100,000, one in 10,000, all the way down. And then it shows her as an adult skiing down a mountain wearing an Olympic uniform. And the odds are one in two. And then, of course, she crosses the finish line and the odds are one and one. And then we read she's actually won eight Paralympic gold medals in her skiing career. And then, of course, the most important thing, Toyota, right? <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with Toyota, but that was a Toyota commercial. Uh, it's, pre- it's a pretty cool commercial. I, I really appreciated it. Uh, to think about all the work and planning and drive that it took for that girl to get there is really pretty amazing. We love these kinds of stories, don't we? Stories of people who set a goal and then dedicate their lives to making it happen. And there are definitely biblical principles that come into play with something like that. These stories can inspire us in many different ways, even in our pursuit of the things of God. 
We think about perseverance, overcoming obstacles in the strength of the Lord. But they also cause me to be reminded that how we think about our future really matters. Not just that we think about it, but how we think about our future really matters. And that's what James wants to communicate to us today as well. When you think about your future and your plans, ask yourself a question. Do I want what I want or do I want what God wants? Where does the will of the Lord come into your future plans? Are you approaching your future with a humble dependence upon the will and providence of God? Or do you have your own agenda that you're going to pursue no matter what? We've been making our way through the book of James for the last few months. We've seen a lot of practical wisdom in this book, right? James has a lot to say to us about how to live out true religion. True religion is to be doers of God's word and not just hearers. True religion means bridling our tongues and what we say so that we don't praise God and curse people with the same tongue. True religion is to care for orphans and widows. True true religion is to show no partiality toward people, especially those who are rich or influential. True religion is to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we fail to do that, we have broken God's law, just like committing adultery or murder. This is what James teaches. If we say we have faith, don't have works, and our faith is dead, we're still in our sins. And we get to James chapter 4, we see that James's answer to all these problems, all of these, these ways that we live inconsistently is not to just do better. Do better, James doesn't say. Just do better. We see in 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6, that God continues to give more grace. Even though we have all failed to live up to his holy standards. Our lives are not consistent, but he gives more grace. Then we see that those who humbly submit themselves to God are drawn near to him. We are cleansed from sin. Our hearts are purified. Our double minds are changed. Instead of us seeking to exalt ourselves, we are brought low before God, and he exalts us at the proper time. Then... James launches back into more practical wisdom about how to live as those who have been changed by God. And today we're going to see that true religion has an effect even on how we think about and plan for the future. It's important. We live in a world full of advice about this subject, don't we? There are all kinds of self-help books and strategies that deal with planning out your future I mean, if you want to know how to plan your future, you can go to Barnes & Noble. There's dozens of books to choose from, right? After all, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? There's all kinds of little little catchy statements, right, we could could get into. There's all kinds of advice out there about how how to make your future what you want it to be. It is assumed in our culture That the person who plans well, sets high goals, reaches for the stars, works hard, and strives with all his might, this is the man or woman who will be successful. But James wants us to understand something about our future plans. There is a way to plan for the future 
and even talk about the future that portrays a heart of arrogance toward God. And there's a way to plan for the future that portrays a heart of humble dependence upon God. We're going to look at this contrast today. Those are my two points, the arrogant heart of man and the surrendered heart of man. What does the arrogant heart of man look like, and what does it mean to be surrendered? And my hope is that we will see, here's my main point, that our plans for the future must include absolute surrender to the will of the Lord. Our plans for the future must include absolute surrender to the will of the Lord. So let's read, starting in James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We're going to start towards the end here. Look again down in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James sums up this person's attitude by calling it evil, boastful, and arrogant. But why? What is it about this person's attitude that is evil and boastful and arrogant? We're going to look at what this person is saying and why is it considered evil, boastful, and arrogant. First, the arrogant man says, I can be successful on my own. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Doesn't sound that bad, right? And before we can talk about what's wrong with this attitude, we need to make something clear. This is kind of a caveat. James is not saying that there's something inherently wrong with making plans. That's not his point in this passage. Even as we'll see later, the remedy or the flip side for this presumptive attitude is not don't make any plans. It's not what James's point is. James does not want his people to stop planning for the future or thinking about tomorrow or saving money or checking your calendar. He's not telling us to let go and just let God, right? He does not expect us to wake up each day and expect to do nothing until we get some kind of explicit revelation from God. That's impossible, and no one can or should live life that way. In fact, Psalm 90, 12 Moses prays this, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's wise to number our days. It's wise to look at our calendars and to make the most of the time we have on the earth. It's wise to plan for the future and think ahead and be prepared for what God might bring our way. We don't want to make James say something he's not saying. So don't walk away from this message today thinking that you're in sin if you plan ahead, if you make plans. But there is a way to think about the future 
that comes from a posture of humble dependence and a way to think about the future that comes from an arrogant, self-sufficient heart. And that's what James is addressing. In this verse, this person fails to take God into account when he thinks about the future. These people expose the true nature of their hearts by the way they talk about their business plans. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. We will spend a year there. We will trade. We will make a profit. They think that they determine when they will go, how long they will be there, what they will do when they are there, and how successful their efforts will be. They are so sure of themselves. They do not leave room for what God might be pleased to do during that time. They, do not, they have their own plans, their own agendas. In their heart, they have placed their hope firmly in their own ideas, their own intellect, their own skills, and their own abilities for success. In their mind, it's up to them. They determine their own destiny. Now, in America, we love the idea of the self-made man, the rags-to-riches man, the person who starts out in life with disadvantages and setbacks, but over the course of time, pulls himself up by his bootstraps. In the 1800s, United States Senator Henry Clay referred to the self-made man in the U.S. Senate. And when he used that term, he was describing individuals in the manufacturing sector, which was sort of like the Silicon Valley sector of that day, the, 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 the workers, the creators, the inventors, the manufacturing sector, whose success lay within the individuals themselves and not with outside conditions. That was the idea of the self-made man. His success lays within himself. But oftentimes what happens is that the self-made man is warped into the self-worshipping man and eventually the self-destructive man. His pride becomes so great that he destroys his own soul and leaves others destroyed in the process. Because when we preach to our souls our own self-sufficiency, eventually we will actually start to believe that. We will actually begin to believe that we have made this life for ourselves. I am the sole reason why things are the way they are. I am the one with the gifts and the talents and the know-how. I am the leader. I am the one with the answers. I am the one that others want to be like. Anyone who questions me is against me. This man becomes unteachable, untouchable. What started as a little bit of arrogance has morphed into a den of wickedness. Ultimately, we each become gods of our own little universes. It's a tiny universe, so there's no room for anyone else. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. The arrogant heart of man forgets what Proverbs 16, 9 says. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. The arrogant man forgets that his steps are determined, every one of them. 
He can put all the effort he wants in. God is the one who determines his steps. Next, the arrogant man says, I know what will happen tomorrow. James says in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Why does he say that? It's because these people were saying, I know what's gonna happen tomorrow. They assume that they know with absolute certainty what will happen. This man believes his ideas and his plans will come to fruition by his own strength. That's why he plans his future with such arrogance. Again, James is not saying that we should not plan for tomorrow. I have plans for tomorrow. There are things I expect to do. I'm counting on certain things happening that I have no control over, like waking up, like the sun coming up, like being healthy enough to go to work. There are things I'm counting on that I have some control over, like am I going to exercise or not? What am I going to eat? How am I going to spend my time? I have some control over those things. But James's point is that in the midst of it all, we must not forget God. All the things that will happen tomorrow that you have no control over, how often do we give thanks to God for them? And all the things we think we have some control over, how often do we do them for the glory of His name? Or do you just trudge along through your day with your head down, failing to recognize God's ongoing, consistent provision for you? There's a word I heard a few years ago that's been helpful for me to remember. The word is God consciousness. God consciousness. When you think about tomorrow, is there a God consciousness that marks your thinking and even your speech and how you talk about tomorrow? Are you conscious of God's ever-present care for you? Is there an awareness, a, a, a feeling of your dependence upon Him when you think about tomorrow? Or do you just carry on with your life as though everything depends ultimately on you? I want to encourage us today to ask God to help us become more conscious of His presence. We are so prone to self-sufficiency. I know I am. Maybe some of you just need to stop right now and confess that you've lacked that God consciousness. And over time, maybe your heart has grown distant or hard towards God. Confess that now. Ask Him to create in you a renewed recognition of His power and provision in your life. The arrogant man thinks tomorrow will go his way because of his own efforts. He forgets that he's not even guaranteed his next breath, much less another day. The thought that someone other than him is in control of his world is the farthest thing from his mind. There's no recognition of God's providence or control. There's no thankfulness to God for what He's been given. And the thought of being dependent upon anyone else to Him is a sign of weakness that must be resisted. This often causes me to, to ask a question. Have you ever wondered why God created the universe the way that He did? For example, 
why did God create man with such limited knowledge? I mean, couldn't he have created a world in which mankind had certain knowledge of the future? Have you ever wondered that? Why can't we know what will happen tomorrow? Why did God create us this way? Why did he structure the universe so that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? He could have, right? That's feasible for God to do that. I believe one of the reasons is so that we would learn more and more how to trust him and not ourselves. You see, God is more concerned that we learn to humbly depend on him than he is with us getting through life easily. Think about what life circumstances you have learned the most about trusting God. Were those times when things were easy? When things went exactly how you expected? Probably not. More likely, there were times of great trial or hardship. We learn to trust God more because we don't know the future. We don't know how things are going to turn out. Even the best laid plans of men can come to nothing in an instant. It's this limit on our knowledge and power that should cause us to actually reach out to God seeking help and direction. So this limit on our knowledge is good for us. It's good for us to remember this and to reflect on this and to thank God for this because it causes us to stop trusting in ourselves and to reach out to Him. If you've ever agonized over a decision, I guarantee you've had these thoughts. Maybe you've had to choose between two really good options. Maybe you've had two good job offers in totally different parts of the country. Which one do I choose? What school do I go to? What, what's my major going to be? There's two girls I really like. Which one do I ask? I'm engaged to both. Which one do I marry? <laughs> Hopefully that never happens. We need to have some previous conversations before that would happen, hopefully. The point is, we have choices. We make choices all the time. How do we choose? I mean, we've all been here, right? Paralyzed, maybe, at times. I don't know what to do. And what we want in that moment, what do you really want? You want the omniscience of God, right? Isn't that what we want? Lord, I want to know. Just tell me what to do, right? If I could only know what would happen tomorrow, this would be so much easier. And then we, we begin to long not in a good way, for this attribute of God that only he has. We want to be God. We want to know that the decisions we make today will, with absolute certainty, produce certain results tomorrow. We want that. We covet that knowledge. God has not given us that knowledge. That's good for us. It's good for us. These life decisions, I mean, there's hundreds of them. Even in this room, if we were to ask right now, we would all be facing these decisions right now. I got one. A wheel fell off my forerunner a couple weeks ago. Just hit a bump, bam, it's gone. 
uh, whatever, I don't even know, ball joints, something, lug nuts, uh, I don't know, axles and stuff. Uh, something busted. Do I fix it? A couple thousand dollars maybe? Do I forget it and get something, de- something else? Do I not get anything? You know, these are decisions, right? I don't know. You know what I want? I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow if I pick a certain decision, right? I want to know, I want to guarantee that if I put $2,000 into this, I'm going to get $2,000 worth of time out of this vehicle, right? I want that certainty. God doesn't give me that certainty. He doesn't give it to me. These decisions can cause us to desire the omniscience of God. We want to know that our decisions will bring about certain results. We live in fear many times because we don't know the future. Rather than trusting God's sovereign plan and his providence, God's providence, we fret and we worry and we speak as though our entire world will come undone if things don't go our way. And all the while, our Lord Jesus sits enthroned on high over it all, and he accomplishes all his good pleasure. He does whatever he wills. Here we are, fretting and worrying. Church, we have no reason to fear tomorrow. All our days are in the hand of the Lord, and his purposes for us are always good. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the arrogant man often doesn't agonize about tomorrow, You know why? Because he's so certain that things will work out in his favor. He has trained himself to trust in his own designs. As one commentator says on this passage, he says, life is far from simple. It's a complex matrix of forces, events, and people, contingencies, and circumstances over which we have little or no control, making it impossible for anyone to ascertain, design, or assure any specific future. Despite that, some people foolishly imagine that they are in charge of their lives. Sadly, such people ignore not only the existence of God's will, but also its benefit. Christians have the comfort of knowing that the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe controls every event and circumstance of their lives and weaves them all into his perfect plan for them. That's good news for us. Proverbs 27.1 reminds us of the same truth. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Third, the arrogant man, the arrogant heart of man says, I will live forever. I will live forever. Now, I know you probably never heard anyone say that. I don't think I have either, right? I don't think anyone says this seriously, I've never heard anyone seriously claim they are going to live forever. If anyone did make such a statement, they'd be written off as crazy, right? In fact, if you were to stop anyone on the street and ask them if they expected to die one day, they would almost certainly say yes, and then they would probably run away from you and call the police because nobody likes being stopped on the street and asked about dying, right? That would be very frightening. But while everyone intellectually knows we are going to die, We often fail to live our lives in light of that fact. 
In verse 14, James says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Your life is a mist. It's a breath compared to eternity. And while everyone knows death is imminent, almost everyone lives in denial of that fact. Even though we may not explicitly deny our imminent death, here are some ways we subtly buy into this lie. First, we fail to acknowledge God's sovereign control over the length of our lives. We live each day as though our survival ultimately depends on us and the choices we make. Now, don't get me wrong. We want to live wisely, right? We want to take care of our bodies and minds, but we must do so with the recognition that God has determined the length of your life. We are mortal, and ultimately, we have very little control over our death. Very few people who die actually want to die. Almost everyone who dies would rather continue living, and yet they still die. We have very little control over it. This should immediately humble us. Our own frailty and mortality, our proneness to sickness and pain ought to be a daily reminder that we are not God and we are in need of His strength. But how else do we fail to live in light of eternity? Well, maybe we spend our lives on triviality and worldly pursuits. Maybe we strive and struggle for what the world prizes, whether it be status or control or money or possessions or fame. Maybe we waste our lives on things of no eternal significance like entertainment or gossip or our vocation or temporary pleasure. How would your life change if you knew, if you knew that your death was quickly approaching? Several years ago, Tim McGraw released a song title called Live Like You Were Dying. Probably all heard this song on the radio at some point. The lyrics tell of a man in his 40s. He gets news of uh, terminal illness. This news causes him to decide to live life to the fullest, right? According to the song, that means to go do things he's always wanted to do, such as skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds, on a bull named Fu Manchu, right? Bull riding, apparently, is a, is a bucket list. Now, to the song's credit, there are some more noble changes that take place, like becoming a better husband and friend. So even though I don't think the song is what we are called to emulate, necessarily, the principle that undergirds the song is a biblical principle. How would your life change if you really believed your life was a vapor. James tells us, what are you? Your life, you are a mist. You are here today. You are gone tomorrow. How else do we fail to live in light of eternity? Here's one more way, maybe. Maybe we continually harbor secret, hidden sin. When we forget that our life is a vapor, we believe, we start to believe that this life is really all there is, okay? 
And when we start to believe that this life is of most importance, then we stop taking sin seriously. True godliness goes by the wayside, and we start to live for perceived godliness. We forget about eternity, and we think, this is it. So what's really most important to me is that I'm perceived to be godly by others, not that I actually know and love Christ more. We close ourselves off from others. We're not honest about what's going on with ourselves. This is because we're living as if this life is all there is. What matters most is that I maintain this view or perception from others. Eternity is out the window. There's other ways that we fail to live in light of eternity. But I don't want you to hear me saying that it's impossible to make eternal investment in this world, okay? A lot of times when we talk about saying no to the world and yes to eternal things, what we often think is that we must shun the physical and focus on more spiritual things, okay? So I need to get rid of these physical things, whatever they may be. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's relationships, money, whatever. Dedicate less time to those and more time to spiritual things like, I don't know, prayer, Bible reading, uh, other things that we would categorized as spiritual activities. But I, I want us to think more discerning than that. Because oftentimes, living in light of eternity actually means investing more in the physical, not less. This has become much clearer to me than ever in recent years. Those of you who have children will probably identify with this as well. I don't know about you, but I have thousands of photographs at my fingertips right here to remind me that my life is a vapor. I can get on my phone right now and pull up photos from the last 15 years of my life. Looking at photos of my children when they were younger, this is a constant reminder that time is racing, that God has called me to make the most of every moment I have with them because I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. When I look at pictures of my children two years ago, four years ago, nine years ago, it just seems like yesterday, right? I remember as a child hearing adults talk like this. I thought it was just the dumbest thing. What? What are you talking about? Time is so slow. I can't wait to grow up. I can't wait till my next birthday. I can't wait till Christmas. I can't wait till all this stuff, right? Here I am. It's crazy. It's just crazy how fast time goes. If we lived in light of eternity, if we really believed that, how much, how different would your life be? So living in light of eternity does not mean, therefore, that we neglect our children or distance ourselves from them because they are of the world, right? That's not what that means. No, living in light of eternity means that we, we press in farther. We make the most of the time that we have been given. 
We don't push physical things aside as though they are less important so that we can dedicate ourselves to something more spiritual. No, the physical things actually take on proper importance when they are viewed through the lens of eternity. We don't shun the physical for the spiritual. We just simply reorder the physical so that it has its proper place in God's economy. So if you're sitting there thinking about all the physical things that you need to purge your life of in order to make room for the spiritual things, I want you to reconsider that thought. Of course, if there is sin in your life, then yes, push it aside, cut it off, distance yourself from it. If there are physical things in your life that are distracting you from pursuing Christ, then yes, perhaps you should get rid of them. But God does not mean for us to live apart from the physical world he placed us in. So we need to ask ourselves not how we can throw off the physical to get more spiritual, but how can we live better in the physical world we've been given? And much more could be said about that. I just wanted to make that clear because when we talk about living in light of eternity, it's really easy for us to therefore turn away from things that we need to actually be dedicating ourselves better to. So summing up the arrogant heart of man, we've seen that the arrogant heart of man says, I can be successful on my own. I know what will happen tomorrow. I will live forever. Verses 16 and 17 say, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Some of you might be sitting there wondering if this was really that big of a deal. Is how we think about our future really that important? Can't I just plan what I want and then work towards that plan? Yes, you can. Can't I just figure out what I think is best and take steps to make that happen? Yes, you can. But there's a way to do those out of a heart of arrogance and self-sufficiency that we must repent of. But how do you know if that's what you're doing? So here's just a few questions to ask yourself. Okay, Caleb, I hear what you're saying, but how do I know if my heart is arrogant? Here's some questions to ask. What do I really want out of life? And be honest. What am I really striving for? You think about those Olympic athletes. I'm probably boxing them in too much here, but... If they had that one event, they dedicated themselves to that one thing for 20, 30, 40 years, depending on what it is. One thing, one focus. Ask yourself, what is my one thing? What am I really, really driving at in this life? And be honest. Ask somebody else, somebody who knows you. And don't argue with them. Just hear what they have to say. What do I really want out of life? Second, how do I react? This is, this is probably the most important one. How do I react when things don't go my way? That'll reveal what you really want. How do we know if we're boastful and arrogant and prideful in how we think about our future? Well, what happens to you? What is your response when you don't get the future 
that you thought you wanted? If the answer is, I turn to sin, I get angry, I lash out, I make other foolish decisions, the chances are you're wanting something in the wrong way. Even a good thing, you're wanting in the wrong way. Third, another question, how do I treat others when they get in the way of what I want? When I'm interrupted, when others seem to, to get in my way, how do I treat them? Do I view them as obstacles to overcome or do I view them as God-ordained, uh, sanctifying agents in my life? There's other questions to ask. I think those are three very important ones. Be honest with yourself about them. And as if James has not been clear enough, he sums up this section by explicitly stating that when we fail to do the will of the Lord, it is sin. When we make plans that do not include the will of God, what we end up doing is living a life apart from His good and holy purpose. Eventually, we become so used to doing what we want that we lose interest in the will of the Lord altogether. So we spent a lot of time so far looking at the arrogant heart of man, right? We could, we could say a lot more from this passage about what the arrogant heart of man looks like. But hopefully in doing so, we've already started to see the other side, okay? This is what I'm calling the surrendered heart of man. Now, why surrendered? If you're one of the men who attended the men's simulcast last weekend, um, you'll probably recognize that I stole this word from them. Uh, this, this idea of surrendering to the Lord is from one of the talks that uh, one of the, one of the uh, speakers gave. What does it mean to surrender? Well, it means that you're choosing to give up because you've been captured. In war, it means that you're cornered. You've tried every way of escape. You're out of options. You don't want to die. So you give yourself up. You throw yourself at the mercy of your enemy. And from that point on, when you're surrendered, you only do what your captors say you can do. You eat what they tell you to eat. You talk when you're allowed to talk. You don't get to make any decisions for yourself. In the Christian life, surrender is similar, but also very different. See, in war, people surrender to their enemies. They surrender to people they hate in order to preserve their lives. It is a surrender out of obligation and self-preservation. That's not so with Christ, thankfully. In Christ, we surrender to Him because we see Him as someone we long to be with and we long to be like. It is a willing surrender that comes about because of a change of heart. And that heart change comes about because how we view Christ changes. In Christ, we have been captured, not by our enemy. We've been captured by the love of our Savior. When we recognize that love and that acceptance that we have and that peace with God that we have in Christ, we willingly throw up our hands and we say, I surrender. I'm yours. Whatever you want from me, I don't make any rules. No rules anymore. I'm all yours. That's the attitude that James has in mind when he says, instead you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. That's complete surrender. The person who is surrendered to the Lord is concerned first and foremost with surrendering to the will of the Lord. Do you see how this is in complete contrast to the arrogant man we've been talking about? It's not hard to see. The arrogant man believes he controls his own destiny. The surrendered man is captive to the will of the Lord. Psalm 48 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 143.10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Jesus states in Mark 3.35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And probably the greatest example of surrendering to the will of God was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion when he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of wrath, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see all throughout Scripture that those who belong to God are those who do His will. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, but what if God's will is something I don't want to do? But that's exactly why this is good news for us. Because you see, if we belong to Christ, that means we have been adopted into the family of God. He is our Father, and His will for us is always good. We don't have to be afraid of what God's will is for us. His purposes and His providence is not always easy. In fact, I promise you it won't be easy, but it is always what is best. Some of you may be wondering how you can know the will of the Lord. Well, first let me encourage you by saying that it is God's will first that you would know and worship Him alone. That's God's will for your life today. Yesterday, tomorrow, 50 years from now, is the will of the Lord for you to know and worship Him alone. But each of us have failed to live according to that will. We as a human race have turned away from our Creator and we've chosen to worship the creation instead. We try to build our little kingdoms where we are kings and queens and we try to live apart from God. We have sinned and rebelled against him. We all know this. But God, even though he would be justified in destroying us immediately for our sin, has chosen instead to bring us back to him. God did this by coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus. And when Jesus came, he committed no sin whatsoever. He did that so the righteous requirement of God's law would be fulfilled. We failed to fulfill God's righteous requirement, but Jesus did it for us. This is very important when we think about the will of the Lord. Because before we can think about living according to the will of the Lord, what we have to remember is this. Christ already perfectly fulfilled the will of the Lord. Christ never sinned. Think about that. He never wavered. 
Every action, every word, every thought was done in perfect harmony to the will of his Father. Doesn't that blow your mind? You think about, I don't even, sometimes I don't even know what the right thing to do is. Jesus obeyed perfectly. Not once did he make a decision that he regretted. He obeyed the will of the Lord perfectly. In John 5, Jesus tells his disciples this, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This truth must be central to our thinking about the will of God. If we forget that Christ perfectly fulfilled God's will for us, then we can easily start to think that our acceptance before God is based on whether or not we perfectly do His will. The fact is we are all sinners, and we don't perfectly obey God's will. We haven't. But Christ did it for us. Church, that is the best news. Because I'm overwhelmed when I think about obeying the will of the Lord. I'm so thankful that that overwhelming feeling helps me turn to Christ and say, thank you. It's done. It's done for me. And then... Christ was murdered on a cross. And when he died, he actually bore the punishment of his people on himself. And now, 2,000 years later, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in that work of Christ, that completed work of Christ, can have their sin forgiven and the hope of eternal life with him. That is God's will for you today. That you would turn from your sin and trust in the finished work of Christ. That, that what we saw in, earlier in James 4 would happen to you. You would humbly submit yourself to the Lord. Your heart would be cleansed. Your double mind would be changed. And that you would be purified. From that point on, the will of God becomes central to your life. We are called daily to seek the will of the Lord. And every decision, conversation, relationship, the will of the Lord becomes our aim more and more. We stop living in the bondage of self-sufficiency and we start living in the freedom of humble dependence upon Christ. We'll stop saying things like, come now, you who say, let's go Tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and we buy, sell, and trade there, make a profit. We'll stop speaking as though we are in charge of our lives. Rather, we will say, if the Lord wills, we will do this. Now, does that mean that we have to end every sentence with the phrase, Lord willing? So that every time we talk about 
Uh, yeah, tomorrow I'm supposed to go to work at 10 p.m., Lord willing. Yeah, I'm hoping to, uh, and I'm really hoping that my forerunner doesn't cost, you know, a whole lot of money, Lord willing. Lord willing, I'll be able to afford it. <laughs> um, I don't think we need to do that, but that might be an appropriate application for some of you. It certainly wouldn't be a bad thing to vocalize our dependence upon God's will. Maybe you need to do that more. Maybe some of you need to think about saying a little more often, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, right? That could be an appropriate application. I don't think it's mandated by this text. But because I don't think that simply tacking on a couple words at the end of our sentences is what James has in mind. You see, what James is looking for is a posture of our heart. We need hearts that are humble and submitted to the will of the Lord, no matter what His providence might bring. So finishing up, ask yourself, how does your heart need to change? Are there areas of your life you're failing to submit to the Lord? Your words, how you spend your time, your thought life, an impure relationship, whatever it is, take time today to confess those things to the Lord. Let a fellow brother or sister know and surrender yourself wholly to the Lord. And church, let's ask the Lord to help us live in humble dependence upon him today. How we think and talk about the future really matters because our plans for the future must include absolute surrender to the will of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like there is so much more that could be said on this topic, and I've just scratched the surface, and I've done so poorly. But Lord, I pray now that you would take this word, take your word, and apply it to our hearts individually, apply it to our hearts collectively as your people, unify us under this truth, Lord, so that we as your people, as as the body of Christ, would understand better and be motivated with, with greater excitement and joy in pursuing the will of the Lord. God, may we not be distracted by sin or entanglements of this world, but may we pursue Christ with all of our might. May we surrender to you, Lord, knowing that you know what is best for us. May we not be afraid of anything because we know that you care for us. We know that you hold tomorrow. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.